Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we look at the unrest in Turkey. What prompted it? What does it mean for the future of Turkish politics and the wider region? Joining me on the line from Istanbul is our correspondent there, Dan Dombey. And in the studio here in London is Vincent Boland, a former bureau chief in Turkey for the FT. Dan, first, we saw the police try to retake Taksim Square in the centre of Istanbul yesterday. What's the situation now? Well, I was there just a few hours ago, and the police, it looks like, are there to stay. Uh, They took Taksim Square twice on Tuesday, once in the morning with a relatively uh, low-key operation, once in the evening where they used tear gas and water cannon to dispel literally thousands, if not tens of thousands, of demonstrators. That's a confrontation that could be reenacted in coming days, Uh, although Prime Minister Erdogan has just said today that... uh, He expects this whole thing to come to an end in 24 hours and that he's instructed his interior minister in that regard. At the moment, therefore, you know, that air of confrontation is still there. Gezi Park, where I was this afternoon, is pretty battered. People are tending their wounds uh, literally as well as metaphorically, but no one wants to go. Of course, we're all guessing at this stage, Dan, but Prime Minister Erdogan, as you say, wants things just to disappear, go back to business as usual. The demonstrators seem determined to to continue in some form. What's your guess? Is this going to continue for for quite a while? I think the pessimists so far have been proved right at every turn. This is clearly something that could have been diffused at an earlier stage. This is a dispute about a park, not a particularly pleasant park, but a park, a tiny scrap of land next to Taksim Square in a huge city. And the fact that this dispute has gathered steam uh, and taken on all these other causes about uh, about the government's alleged authoritarianism, I think speaks to disastrous crisis management more than anything else. So one has, to, I think, to be pessimistic, uh, not least because of some of the notes sounded by the Prime Minister. He hasn't stepped back at all from his idea of building a barracks in Gezi Park, although he says it might not necessarily include a shopping mall now. That's something that First of all, is illegal as present. Uh, a court has ruled against it and put a stay of execution. Secondly, a poll that came out today, Wednesday, said that 75% of people in Istanbul opposes it. But I think he sees it as a test of strength. And more than that, I think he sees it perhaps as a kind of reckoning between his AKP party and um, its enemies. Uh, he, in his series of quite aggressive speeches, is depicting the protesters as irreligious people who have taken beer into a mosque, which people dispute have insulted women with headscarves. He's talked about how this is a similar atmosphere to the two coups that were carried out in 1960 and 1980 to very bloody effect. He seems to be seeing this as a test of strength to finish off his opponents. We're going to see more of that, I'm afraid, in coming days. There are going to be uh, ruling party rallies on Saturday and Sunday. Um, People in the ruling party, I think, have made the calculation that these demonstrators represent only about 25% of the population, that their own base, the ruling party's uh, uh, base, is very strongly uh, irritated by this turn of events, by these people hogging their headlines. 
And I think for that reason, he sees it, to be honest, as a fight to the finish. That can't necessarily be good news. Not in economic terms, because Turkey depends on short-term finance uh, and therefore on the um, caprices of the market to a certain extent. And not in social terms, because if you have one part of Turkey's uh, society so at odds with another, that's not good if the part of society in the eye of the other one is perhaps the most productive part of society. Vincent, you were... Um, correspondent there in the early Erdogan years when he was, you know, much lauded around the world as a model of a more moderate form of Islam and so mm. on. In retrospect, could you see the seeds of this then? Uh, you could certainly see the authoritarian streak in Erdogan and the sort of intolerant streak. And you could see it in the context of politics in Turkey invariably being a zero-sum game that in order for me to win, you have to lose. This has been the sort of default position of Turkish politics for a long time. That has not changed regardless of who's in power really since Turkey became a democracy, um, you know, which is now 50 years ago or so. So I think the conditions for it were there. But one did not see Erdogan becoming so absurdly entrenched as he has become now back when I was there between 2004 and 2008. And I mean... Dan on the ground obviously has a kind of bad feeling about how this is going, given the way that Erdogan's playing it. From a greater distance, is it possible to be any calmer or are you also worried? Uh, I am worried in the sense that, you know, it has become so symbolic about lots of grievances that the demonstrators have and the protesters have and Erdogan's complete inability to understand that point of view. I think that the gulf that it has revealed between the people in the park and the government and the AKP generally is enormous and rather worryingly enormous, I think. And that is where I think the danger lies. It's not so much in the actual confrontation itself, which I suspect will be resolved. I certainly don't see it happening in 24 hours, as Erdogan seems to think it will. But I would have thought that in 24 days it might well be resolved. But the gulf it has revealed, I think, is deeply worrying. Just as a side note, though, give us an idea about the development of Istanbul as a city and the strength of the construction industry in Turkey. Because you were saying to me that it's they've, they've basically built over everything and the, the, the Bosphorus, uh, the glorious mm. river and the, the waters, it's very hard to get access to them because it's all been privatised. Absolutely. I was there in April and Istanbul is the megacity par excellence, certainly on, you know, in the sort of European and Middle Eastern context. It is enormous. It's almost 15 million people. Every neighbourhood has a small forest of skyscrapers, huge buildings. We're talking about 50 and 60 and 70 storeys high. Some of them are empty. Uh, a lot of them are speculatively developed. So people put them up and then go and look for tenants. There's concrete everywhere. The little park that Dan uh, is referring to in Taksim Square, Gezi Park, is actually a miserable little piece of greenery because it's been completely neglected. But it happens to be the only place around the Taksim area that has any kind of green space to it. And, you know, another irony of this whole situation is that I think nobody can dispute that Taksim Square is a bit of a dump and was crying out for, for redevelopment, just not in the way that it was that is proceeding. Now, Vincent, you, you now uh, are writing mainly about business and finance. Dan mentions the vulnerability mm. of the Turkish economy. Mm. It's running a huge current account deficit. How, uh, how do you see the markets playing this? I think that there is a degree of nervousness among investors that one hasn't really seen up to now. I think what mainly worries them, again, is not really the confrontation between the demonstrators and the government, but the reaction of Erdogan and all this 
nonsense that he's going on about this interest rate lobby. This is not new, by the way, this interest rate lobby accusation. This is this has been sort of simmering away within the sort of upper echelons of the AKP and of the government over the last couple of years. Because Erdogan's view is that interest rates should be zero, effectively, after inflation. Um, but, you know, in the Turkish case, and, and in most countries, they're not like that. There's always, you know, a little bit of positive interest rate uh, involved. Is this an Islamic thing, a sort of prejudice against the usury? Or- exactly. This is what it seems to be. It would appear to play into this whole uh, notion of um, Sharia finance and the um, zero interest rates and not charging interest interest on money lent. And the Islamic banking sector in Turkey is growing very fast. So, yes, it does play into all of that. It's not official government policy, as far as I know, but it is definitely a stream of thinking in the senior echelons of the government, perhaps of the central bank, and also of the AKP. And so, um, again, perhaps almost in the same way that uh, he doesn't appear to be inclined to take any step backwards in his attitude to the demonstrators, similarly, confrontational approach to the markets rather than saying, guys, it's all going to calm down. He spends his time denouncing the alleged interest rate lobby. Exactly. I mean, this is definitely counterproductive from the government's point of view, because foreign investors are very important to Turkey, um, partly to finance the current account deficit, and partly because, you know, they own 70% of the Istanbul stock market. And they finance a lot of the development that's going on. Uh, Because one of the problems that Erdogan has not addressed in the whole reform story that he has undertaken in Turkey is the lack of capital in the Turkish economy. And the reason why it lacks capital is because structural reforms, real structural reforms, have not penetrated very deep into the Turkish industrial structure or the economic structure. So you have things like oligarchical ownership of companies. You have monopolies, you have duopolies, and you have really an uncompetitive domestic landscape in certain respects that I think is holding the economy back and that the government has not addressed, despite the fact that it's been in power for 10 years, and that the AKP and Erdogan and his senior people are quite mercantilist in in their in their approach. Perhaps it's because they're mercantilists that they haven't actually addressed structural reform rather than in spite of being mercantilists. Right. Finally, I mean, the big question is uh, the regional political angle. Amidst all the turmoil in the region, Turkey had been the sort of beacon of stability. The economy was growing well. Mm. The government seemed to be well entrenched and and, uh, to be fairly pluralist. Uh, Next door, you've got Syria, you've got uh, Iraq, you've got the Iran question burning. Uh, what does instability in Turkey do to the wider regional picture? I mean, presumably they must be very concerned in the White House. Uh, I think they will be very concerned. Um, I mean, the the thing about a stable Turkey is that it was quite a new thing um, because Turkey's default position has always been that it's unstable and it was perhaps not as unstable as Iran or Egypt or um, some of the Middle Eastern states that surround it, or even some of the Caucasian states that surround it. Um, but it may be just reverting to the old position, you know, a pre... I mean, and Turkish stability is really a product of the last seven or eight years. It's not the entire 10-year period of Erdogan's, of Erdogan's rule. Um, I think the problem has been that Erdogan overreached, it seems to be, in, in his foreign policy. He he got Syria wrong, Um and Syria wrong in the sense that initially he cozied up to Assad exactly. and thought that he could get a deal with exactly. him. Exactly. And clearly Assad just uh, dismissed him uh, as not as, as an unimportant interlocutor, which I think was very, I think er- Erdogan was very offended by that. And also I think it damaged him um, his, and his credibility made him look uh, naive. abroad. It made him look a bit naive. And 
so I think that Erdogan has overplayed his hand in a way in certain situations, including not just Syria, but also Israel. I mean, I think the, the, the breach with Israel was very damaging and could have been avoided, really. And I think that those things were sort of warning signals to Turkey's many admirers in the West that, you know, it is still a very difficult place to read and um, that, that stability in Turkey is is not to be taken for granted. And I think that that this return to a degree of instability, and we don't quite know yet how unstable it's going to become. You know, if this crisis passes smoothly without extra bloodshed or violence, then I think that um, it may be forgotten. But, but Turkey is not as stable as it looks. And I think we're just going back to the Turkey that people may know better, which was a, a Turkey that has always been a bit unstable. So, Dan, that's Vincent's view of the regional implications. Sitting in Istanbul, what's your view? I mean, does this, for example, feel something that is part of the same narrative as the Arab Spring, as some people have suggested? No, I don't think that's the right analogy at all. I mean, whatever people may hold against him, Prime Minister Erdogan has been elected three times, and I think there's absolutely no doubt uh, that he would be elected if there was an election again tomorrow. There's an election, a presidential election next year, and every indication is that he's going to win it. I think he's a fixture on the Turkish political scene for years to come, unless I'm very much mistaken. Taksim Square and Tahrir Square are very different phenomena, um, but what I think makes a difference is the damage this does to the image of Turkey and to the image of uh, Mr. Erdogan. Turkey is a country that's prided itself on its soft power. That soft power is now less. Mr. Erdogan has had to do one very unusual for him climb down by pulling police out of Taksim Square about a week ago. And I think if he looks now at his own country, I think he has a choice about whether he rides offshore over one particular minority And I think he also has a choice about whether to rein in his goals. Uh, Turkey had very big ambitions to play a major role in Syria, to play a major role in Iraq. Even before this happened, I think those ambitions were seen as a little bit too much. Uh, After all, um, Turkey has suffered all sorts of indignity at the hands of the Syrians. Uh, It's had a plane shot down. It's had people killed in border towns, whether because of cross-border artillery fire or because of car bombs, almost certainly put there by the Syrians. And it's not been able to respond. Uh, so I think in certain ways his star was already waning, and I think this may accelerate that. He's still going to be around, but I think he'll be a diminished power and one with a very definite image problem. Dan Dombey in Istanbul, thank you very much indeed, and thanks also to Vincent Boland here in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.